ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد continuing with بلوغ المرام او الحافظ ابن حجر رحمه الله تعالى We've now arrived at the hadith of Amir ibn Rabi'ah radiyallahu anhu qal Ra'aytu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yusalli ala rahilatihi haythu tawajjahat bihi muttafaqun alayhi wazad al-Bukhari yumi'u bi-ra'sihi walam yakun yasna'uhu fil-maktubah ولأبي داود من حديث أنس رضي الله عنه كان إذا سافر فأراد أن يتطوع استقبل بناقته القبلة فكبر ثم صلى حيث كان وجه ركابه وإسناده حسن سنان these two hadith the first one of them is the hadith of Amr ibn Rabi'ah رضي الله عنه where he says that I saw the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم praying on his riding animal in whichever direction it faced. I saw the Prophet ﷺ praying on his riding animal in whichever direction it faced. Remember these ahadith, they are in relation to the condition of the prayer, which is facing the qibla, facing towards the Kaaba as a condition from the prayer to be correct. So now these ahadith are linked to that condition. And they are going to explain some of the exceptions that are allowed with regards to the condition of facing the Kaaba, facing the Qibla in prayer. So this hadith which is in Al-Bukhari, a Muslim muttafaqun alayhi, hadith of Amr ibn Rabi'ah, radiyallahu anhu, he says, that I saw the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam praying on his riding animal in whichever direction it was facing. In the narration of Bukhari, there's an addition which says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was indicating with his head. Meaning that when he was praying and doing the ruku' and the sujood and the prostration whilst he was on his riding animal, clearly it's not possible to go into full ruku' and to go into full sujood whilst you're on a riding animal. So the narration of Bukhari adds this section where it says that the Prophet ﷺ was indicating with his head. Indicating with his head. And then in the narration of Abu Dawood from the hadith of Anas radiallahu anhu, he says that if the uh, Prophet ﷺ wanted to journey or when he was journeying and he wanted to pray supererogatory prayers, then he would face his camel towards the qibla whilst he was riding his camel. If he was on a journey and he wanted to pray a supererogatory prayer, not the fard, a supererogatory prayer, then he would make his camel face towards the Kaaba, do the takbir, Allahu Akbar, and then he would pray. No matter where the riding camel then turned his head. He would begin by facing the Kaaba, and then after that he would pray, no matter where the animal then faced. So these two narrations, they indicate, or they are related to that aspect of facing the Qibla when praying, as a condition of the prayer. Uh, this is from the facilitation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us. As Shaykh Fawzan begins by saying, this indicates two things. Firstly, أَنَّ اللَّهَ جَعَلَ مَا بَيْنَ الْمَشْرِقِ وَالْمَغْرِبِ قِبْلَةِ 
This is what we already mentioned last time, that Allah has made that which is between the east and the west as a qibla. How we mentioned that wherever you are, your focus is going to end up towards one direction of the Kaaba. So from all direction, the focus ends up in the same place. ثانياً أن المسافر إذا أراد أن يتنفل ويتهجد بالليل أو بالنهار وهو يسير في الطريق فإنه لا يتمكن من أن ينزل ويصلي على الأرض The Sheikh says if a person now was traveling You're on a journey somewhere, you're traveling And perhaps on that journey whilst you were traveling and the riding animals riding Maybe you want to pray some supererogatory prayer or maybe you are traveling on the riding animal, the camel or whatever it may be in the middle of the night. And you want to pray the night prayer. Supererogatory prayer again. So in that circumstance, whilst you're on the riding animal and you are traveling, then you have a problem. Because if you were to stop and get off the riding animal and pray, then that cuts you in your journey time. And that may cause an issue to have to stop the journey to pray and that may take some time then to pray the night prayer, etc. Or even the supererogatory prayer. It means you have to cut off your journey for that period of time whilst you pray the supererogatory prayer. And that may be a problem for somebody who's traveling and in the night and on their riding animal, etc. But at the same time, if you don't stop and get off, you would have the problem of not being able to pray your supererogatory prayer. So which of the two do you do? Do you stop your animal and get off to pray the supererogatory prayer? And therefore cut your journey, stop your journey and pray and then resume afterwards. Or do you say, I need to continue on my journey. I'm not able to stop at the moment, so I'll just miss the supererogatory prayer. The answer is neither of them. Because you're able to do both. It's from the facilitation and ease that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed upon the believers. That in that circumstance you're able to do both. You don't have to cut off your journey. You can continue journeying. Your camel can continue walking as you are riding it, or your or other animal, whatever it may be. And at the same time, you can still pray your supererogatory prayer on top of the riding animal. So this is from the facilitation of Allah, that a person doesn't have to cut his journey in order to have to pray the supererogatory prayer. But at the same time, he's not stuck in a situation whereby he has to forfeit the supererogatory prayer because he's not able to stop the journey. He doesn't have to do any of that. He can continue the journey and still pray the supererogatory prayer. Um, and that's what the Shaykh says, فَهُوَ بَيْنَ أَمْرَيْنَ So he has two options. إِمَّا أَنْ يُحْرِمَ Either he is prevented from continuing his journey, وَإِمَّا أَنْ يُحْرَمَ وَالنَّافِلَ Or he's prevented from praying the supererogatory prayer. فَاللَّهُ يَسَّرَ لَهُ وَجَمْعَ لَهُ بَيْنَ الْأَمْرَيْنَ So Allah made it easy upon somebody in that circumstance and allowed him to combine between the two affairs, to continue journeying, and at the same time, to be able to pray the supererogatory prayer on top of the riding animal, wherever it faces. And that is with regards to the supererogatory prayer. Um, as for the ruku', the bowing and the sujood, the prostration, then as it's mentioned in the narration of Al-Bukhari, the person indicates with his head, whilst you're on the riding animal, Clearly it wouldn't be possible to go right down into ruku' or to go right down into sujood whilst on top of the camel or other animal. So in that instance you then indicate with your head to uh, uh, indicate the ruku' and to indicate the prostration. فَالنَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ كَانَ فِي سَفَرِهِ يُسَلِّعَ عَلَى رَاحِلَتِهِ أَيْنَمَا تَوَجَّهَتْ بِهِ So the Prophet ﷺ, whilst he was journeying on his journeys, 
on his riding animal, then he would pray on top of the riding animal. Whichever direction it ended up facing. The supererogatory prayers. And he used to indicate with his head for the rukuah and the prostration. But this is only for the supererogatory prayer. لكن هذا في النافلة أما في الفريضة as for the obligatory prayers the fard prayers لم يكن سلم يفعل هذا إلا في حالة واحدة جاء بها الحديث as for the obligatory prayers then the Prophet didn't used to do that for obligatory prayers he didn't used to pray on the riding animal and then the riding animal faces whichever direction away from the Kaaba he wouldn't pray the obligatory prayers like that. This is only for the supererogatory prayers, the nawafil. But there is one narration which indicates that on one occasion the Prophet ﷺ did pray an obligatory prayer on a riding animal. Uh, but that is an exception. That instance which is mentioned in a hadith that the Prophet ﷺ and some of the companions they prayed on their riding animals, an obligatory prayer. An obligatory prayer, that was an exception mentioned in some narrations uh, in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad and in Tirmidhi. But on one occasion, they were on their riding animals and it was the time for the prayer. But due to the heavy rainfall, below them the ground, it was running with water. There was much rainfall and water flow. So it wasn't possible to get off the riding animals and pray there. Almost like a mini stream, a small stream of water everywhere on the ground flowing from the heavy rainfall. So it wasn't possible to stand in that, and then to prostrate in that, with water flowing everywhere. So in that instance, it's mentioned in that narration, that the Prophet ﷺ uh, had the adhan done, and they prayed all of that on their riding animals, due to that instance. But that was an exception. Otherwise, then the obligatory prayer is not prayed in that way. This is for the supererogatory prayers only. So the Shaykh says, فَفِي مِثْلِ هَذِهِ الْحَالَةِ وَإِذَا دَعَتِ الضُّرُورَ إِلَى صَلَاةِ الْفَرِيضَةِ عَلَى الرَّاحِلَةِ فَلَا مَانِعَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ Shaykh Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah says, So in this kind of instance, imagine that now they're on their riding animals and it's raining so heavy that there's almost like a small stream of flood below them. On the, on the, on the riding animal, if they get off, the water will be flowing up to their ankles or their knees. So in that kind of instance, if you were in that kind of situation, or some other pressing situation of that nature, then the shaykh says, you can pray on the riding animals due to the need and the necessity. As for a circumstance or situation where there is no need or necessity of that nature, then the obligatory prayers are not permissible to pray on the riding animals in that way. So then the shaykh says, we have already come to know that one of the conditions of the prayer is that you have to face the Kaaba. You have to face that direction in order for the prayer to be correct. As long as you are able and you have the ability to do so, as we mentioned in some narrations before, maybe a person is traveling in the middle of the night, he doesn't have any compass, he doesn't have any other way to find out where the direction is, then you do as you are able to the best of your ability. But otherwise, then it is a condition to face the Kaaba. However, there are certain circumstances where this condition, you have some leeway with regards to it. This condition of having to face the Kaaba having to face the Qibla, there are some situations where there is leeway in that. The first of them, الَّذِي لَا يَسْتَطِيعُ اسْتِقْبَالِ الْقِبْلَةِ لِكَوْنِهِ مَرِيضًا عَلَى صَرِيرٍ وَلَا أَحَدَ يُوَجِّهُهُ إِلَى الْقِبْلَةِ وَهُوَ مُتَّجِهٌ إِلَى غَيْرِ الْقِبْلَةِ وَيُخْشَى مِنْ خُرُوجِ وَقْتِ الصَّلَاةِ فَهَذَا يُسَلِّ عَلَى حَسَبِ حَالِهِ 
The first circumstance where a person would be uh, excused or would have some leeway with regards to that condition of facing the qibla in the prayer, in the obligatory prayer, would be the shaykh gives the example of a person who is perhaps ill and they are unable to move themselves from their bed. They have some severe illness, maybe breakages in their bones or some other severe illness which prevents them from getting out of their patient bed. They're not able to get themselves out of their bed. So they're lying there in that bed due to some illness or breakages in their bones or body, some accident, whatever it may be, they are in the bed and they are bound to that bed, unable to move themselves out of that bed. That bed happens to be facing a particular direction. The patient in that bed doesn't know which direction it's in, or maybe he even knows that it's not in the direction of the Kaaba, but the time is about to run out. The time for the particular prayer that it is, is about to run out. And he is bound to this bed. Then in that instance, he is not able to do anything else. He is physically unable to get himself out of the bed, or to move the direction of the bed himself. He's physically unable to do anything. He's in that bed, injured, lying there, unable to move. So in that instance, even if that bed happened to be facing a direction other than the Kaaba, other than the Qibla, then he prays. He, because the time may be running out. And there's nobody else who can maybe move his bed into that direction. If that was possible, if you were in a situation in a hospital where you are unable to move yourself, unable to remove yourself from the bed, but there is someone there who could maybe turn the bed slightly, that's possible maybe. If that was possible, then good. Turn the bed to the direction of the Kaaba. But in a situation where you're not able to do that, you're unable to move yourself or to move the bed or anything of that nature, then the shaykh says that's an example where you would just pray then. Pray in the bed as you are then, because the time's going to run out for the prayer. In that instance, as the shaykh quotes, Allah Fear Allah to the best of your ability. And in that circumstance, that is the best of your ability. You're not able to do anything outside of that. Uh, Sheikh gives another example. He says, maybe an individual who for whatever reason finds himself in prison. Maybe an individual who for whatever reason finds himself in prison. He may be in a cell and he has no idea or no way of being able to work out where the Kaaba is in that cell. He's unable to work out what's going on, which direction is in the cell. So that will be another example where that individual then has no way of being able to work out where the Kaaba is. So again, there's leeway for him. He prays, does whatever he can, and he prays. The second instance, that's the first instance where there's leeway with regards to facing the Qibla. In those kinds of circumstances where you're not able to do anything else. So you pray in whatever state you are in. The second situation where uh, there is leeway with regards to facing the Qibla, where you could pray in another direction, even the obligatory prayer, is in the instance of severe fear. In the instance of severe fear. إِذَا كَانَ الْإِنسَانُ هَارِبًا مِنْ For example, some battle is occurring and you are running away from the enemy. The enemy is behind you and you're running away from the enemy. Perhaps you're on a riding animal then. Or perhaps you are in a state where you're running towards a particular direction. Or there is some danger behind you. Maybe that's the direction of the Kaaba. But you're unable to go back and start facing that way because of some danger which is coming from that way. So you have to go and maybe face some other direction. 
or because of flooding. Maybe there is some water or some flood or some reasoning of that nature that prevents you from being able to stand in a way where you're going to be facing the Qibla. Or because of some predators. Maybe you're in some out, uh, some uh, uh, wild place. Maybe there's a forest. Maybe the direction of the Qibla is right in the direction of where you've just seen the lion's den. So now you're unable to face that particular direction because that's where all the predators are coming out from. So now you again, you're stuck in that situation where you can't face that way because of the threat and the danger of maybe predators coming out from that direction. So from the fear, the severe fear in that circumstance, you hide somewhere else and face somewhere else. These kinds of situations, the Sheikh mentions that if you were in that kind of situation, that if you were to then face the direction of the Qibla, you would make yourself open and apparent to the enemies, for example, or you'd make yourself open and apparent to the floods coming that way, or open and apparent to the other types of dangers, predatory animals. So in that instance, you go to somewhere else, and you maybe hide away somewhere else, and you end up having to face a different direction. Then in that situation of severe fear, then it's mentioned that it is permissible to pray, even if it was in the other direction, uh, due to that severe fear, when the time of the prayer comes, and you fear that the time of the prayer may run out, you fear that I'm not going to be able to get to somewhere where I can face the Qibla because the time is going to run out. So in those circumstances, those extreme circumstances, you end up praying in a different direction. And the Shaykh quotes the ayah from the Quran, حَافِذُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاةِ الْوُسْلَىٰ وَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ قَانِتِينَ فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ فَرِجَالًا أَوْ uh, this ayah from Surah Al-Baqarah indicates this point that guard over your prayers and particularly the middle prayer. Many of the scholars, they say that is Salat Al-Asr upon the difference. وَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ قَانِتِينَ And stand to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala قَانِتِينَ uh, Persistent and subservient on that worship. فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ فَرِجَالًا أَوْ رُكْبَانًا And if you are fearful, then فَرِجَالًا أَوْ رُكْبَانًا Then that is the section which then indicates that you could be on a riding animal, for example, Rukbana. Rijalan, also indicating this issue of the uh, different direction due to the fear of the enemy or other things that prevent you from facing that direction. يعني إذا اشتد الخوف وليس بإمكان المرء أن يصلي إلى القبلة فإنه يصلي على حسب حاله. If there is severe threat or danger or fear preventing you from being able to face the qibla in your prayer, so you have to face some other direction due to those circumstances, then there is leeway in that. يصلي إلى الجهة التي هو هارب إليها سواء كان راكبا أو كان ماشيا أو غير ذلك. Then you can pray in the direction that you are running away to, if it's from predatory animals or other things. Pray in that other direction, and that is permissible in that situation of extreme need. The third circumstance where it's allowed, or there is some leeway in that, is what we've just mentioned: the supererogatory prayers. The supererogatory prayers. That is when a person is going to pray something other than the obligatory prayers. And that's mentioned in this hadith that you can pray on the riding animal and then wherever the riding animal faces, even if it's away from the qibla, then on the supererogatory prayers, that is permissible. The shaykh then says, وَقَدْ يَرِدُ عَلَيْنَا الْآنَ سؤال. There's a question that everybody's going to be thinking of right now. There is a question that poses itself to us. وَهُوَ أَنَّ الْمَرَاكِبَ الْآنِ اخْتَلَفَتْ And that is, that the riding animals that we are talking about nowadays are different. The riding things that we use now, the vehicles are different. 
فأصبحت عبارة عن سيارات وطائرات وبواخر Now they are cars and airplanes and boats and ships Those types of things That's what we have now as the equivalent of riding animals So what's the ruling with regards to these types of riding vehicles? Do they take the same as what the hadith are mentioning about riding animals or is it different? والجواب and the answer the sheikh says والجواب عن هذا بأن هذه حكمها حكم حكمها حكم المنازل. The sheikh says the ruling for these types of vehicles now, airplanes, cars, buses, ships, the ruling for these types of vehicles is the same as your homes. Meaning, فإنك تصلي الصلاة بجميع شروطها مستقبلا القبلة وتصلي واقفا وترقع وتركع وتسجد على أرضية المركوب. That you pray the prayer in the normal way. Obviously, if you are able, if you are able and there is space upon this riding vehicle, you're in a large bus, for example, and it's possible. For example, to stand in the alleyway between the seats and pray. Maybe it just happens, it just so happens that the bus is traveling towards the direction of the Qibla. So in that instance, the Shaykh says, you don't just stay sitting down and pray. If you have the ability to stand, then stand on an airplane. If you have the ability to go and stand somewhere and pray properly, ruku' and sujood, everything properly, then do so. Don't use the ruling that this is a riding vehicle, and therefore we can just sit and pray as we please. These kinds of vehicles, the Shaykh says, if you have the ability on them, because most of them are spacious, most of them do have that ability, to be able to stand and pray properly, everything facing the Qibla. On an airplane now with some airlines, they tell you the direction of the Qibla, and there's a space at the back. So on those airlines, then you would have to go, use the space, look at where the Qibla direction is, that they tell you on the plane anyway, and then pray properly. Not to stay sitting in the seats. So now that's what the Shaykh says. With those types of vehicles, you must do it to the best of your ability. If, however, أَمَّا إِنْ تَعَذَّرَ عَلَيْكَ أَنْ تُصَلِّيَ فِي مَكَانَ تَتَمَكَّنُ فِيهِ مِنَ الْوَقُوفِ وَالرُّكُوعِ وَالسُّجُودِ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ لِسَبَبٍ مِنَ الْأَسْبَابِ فَهُنَا تَنْظُرْ The Shaykh says, if, however, you are upon a riding vehicle, whatever that might be, where it is not possible, there isn't space available, for you to be able to stand and pray properly, face the Kaaba, Ruku', Sujood, everything. If there isn't that possibility there, then the Shaykh says you should look at the situation. In Kanat Hadi Salah Yumkinu Jamuha ila Mabadaha, Kadhur Ma al Asar, Wal Maghrim al Aisha, Wanta Satanzilu fi Wachtil Akhira, Fafi Tilkal Hal to Akhirul Ula, Watusaliha Maathania, Indama Tanzil fil Matar. Shaykh says, for example, now with a plane. If you're going to go on a plane, on that particular plane, there isn't any space, it's known about this airline, that they don't provide you any space anywhere. And maybe you're not even able to stand in the alleyways due to whatever they say to you, health and safety, etc. You don't have the ability to be able to stand and pray properly in that plane. The Shaykh says, look at your situation. If your plane ride is short, so maybe for example, your plane ride is from 11 a.m., Till 4 p.m. For example, it's a five-hour plane ride. 11 to 4. Maybe then the Shaykh says in that instance, what you should do is, delay the Dhuhr prayer, and pray it when you land with your Asr. You're a traveler anyway. 
So pray your dhuhr with the asr when you land. So you can pray them both properly. Standing, facing the qibla, the proper ruku'ah, the proper sujood. Do it all properly. Delay one of the prayers and combine it with the other one when you land. Or if your landing time is going to be late, but you are going to set off before or rather after the first prayer enters, then bring the other one forward. Pray asr together at the time of dhuhr before you set off. So that you're not in a situation on the plane where you can't stand and do the raku'ah properly and the sujood properly. So in that instance, the shaykh says, so try to work it out so that you are able to pray them maybe in combination. The dhuhr and asr together at the beginning or at the end, maghrib and isha combined, so that you can avoid having to play on the pl- pray on the plane in the first place. If, however, amma idha kana sayistamirru tayran bihaith yudrikuka iddat awqat wa anta fil jaw, وَلَا يُمْكِنُكَ أَن تُسَلِّيَ عَلَى الصِّفَةِ الْكَامِلَةِ وَفِي تِلْكَ الْحَالِ لَكَ أَن تُسَلِّيَ عَلَى صِفَةِ الَّتِي تَسْتَطِيعَ فَتُسَلِّيَ عَلَى كُرْسِيِّكَ Shaykh says, if you are in a situation where none of that is possible, you're on a lengthy plane ride for example, or some other vehicle, whatever it is, it's a lengthy ride, and there's no ability for you to be able to stand and pray and face the Kaaba properly, then in that situation again, فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ مَا اسْتَضَعَتُمْ Fear Allah to the best of your ability and therefore just pray in whatever best of your ability you can pray. If that means you have to stay on your seat and pray, then stay on your seat and pray. Do it to the best of your ability if you find yourself in that situation where you can't combine prior to setting off or after landing because the times aren't suitable, they haven't entered or they've exited. Then in that case, do as you are able and make the directions or the indications with your head for the ruku'ah and the prostration uh, if you're able to face the Qibla, then do so. For example, you're on an airline, there's no space to get up to the back and go and pray. Some airlines have it, some don't. So you're sitting on your seat, that's the only place you have. But you do know from the directions and the maps and everything on the screens they have, that the Qibla is that way, to your right hand side. So good, in that case, move yourself on your seat to face the Qibla. And stay on your seat if there's nowhere else to go, but face the Qibla and pray. Or you realize that the Qibla is to your left, so turn leftwards on your seat and pray that way. If that's the best you can do, then that's what you do. And even if that is not possible, you're not able to work out where the Qibla is, or you can't move physically for whatever reason, then do the best that you can. And if that means that you're not able to face the Qibla in that situation, then that is the best of your ability. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not burden a person greater than his ability. لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وسعها. The next one, عن أبي سعيد الخدري رضي الله عنه عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال الأرض كلها مسجد إلا المقبرة والحمام. Uh, the Hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri رضي الله عنه that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said all of the earth is a masjid except for the graveyard and the hammam, which will come to mentioning, and it really refers to two things. Either the toilets, but there's another meaning to it as well, which will come to an explanation. The second hadith, عن ابن عمر رضي الله عنهما قال, نهى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أن يصلى في سبع مواطن. The Prophet forbade us to pray in seven places. المزبلة uh, the rubbish tip, the garbage place, al-majzara, the slaughterhouse where you slaughter animals, al-maqbara, the graveyard, wa qari'at al-tariq, 
in the middle of the pathways where people walk. Walhammam, and that's what's meant here now, Walhammam, uh, I think it's what you call the Turkish baths, the, the steam saunas and those types of ones, where people used to go for the sauna and the steam and those types of things. Those baths. وَمَعَاطِنِ الْإِبَلِ And the places where camels are kept, the, what do you call them? The, the places where camels are kept, pen or stable, those types of words, where camels are kept. وَفَوْقَ ظَهْرِ بَيْتِ اللَّهِ الْحَرَامِ And on top of the Kaaba. This hadith though is weak. But we'll come to the explanation now. So these two hadith then, they are talking about another condition from the conditions of the prayer. And that is what? What, what are the topic? What is the topic of these two hadith? What condition of the prayer are they referring to? The place. And what about the place? What's the condition of the place? That it needs to be pure. That the place, the place where you pray needs to be upon purity. Just as your clothes need to be upon purity, just as your body needs to be upon purity. Three things. Your body needs to be pure, your clothes need to be pure, and the place where you're going to pray needs to be pure. So these ahadith are talking about the place where you pray. And that is one of the conditions of the prayer, that the place where you pray needs to be pure. فَهَذَانِ الْحَدِيثَانِ فِيهِمَا شَرْطٌ مِّن شُرُوطِ صِحَّةِ الصَّلَاءِ وَهُوَ وَجُوبِ اجْتِنَابِ النَّجَاسَةِ فِي الْبُقْعَةِ وَالثَّيَابِ وَالْبَدَنِ فَلَا يُسَلِّيَ الْإِنسَانِ فِي مَكَانِ النَّجِسِ وَلَا يُسَلِّي فِي ثَوْبِ النَّجِسِ وَلَا يُسَلِّي عَلَى بَدَنِهِ نَجَاسَةً إِذَا كَانَ بِإِمْكَانِهِ أَنْ يُزِيلَ هَذِهِ النَّجَاسَةً So this is talking about one of the conditions of the prayer and that is to make sure that you are away from not in a place where there is impurity when you pray on the buqa'ah, the area, the place where you pray, there is no impurity. And also on your clothes, and also on your body, that there is no impurity. So a person does not pray in a place where there is impurity, nor does he pray if on his clothes there is impurity, or on his body there is impurity. So the first hadith says then, that all of the earth is a masjid apart from the grave, and the hammam, which can be termed as the toilets, or these other types of bathing places. And then the second hadith mentioned those other parts, the rubbish tip, the garbage tip, the slaughterhouse, the pathway of the people, the stables or the pens of the camels, and on top of the Kaaba. These two hadith though, as we said, both of them are weak. Both of the narrations are weak. Uh, however, what's mentioned in them, some of the aspects, some of the aspects that are mentioned in these hadith are legitimate. Because there are other hadith which are authentic that back them up. Some of the aspects. So one of them, which is mentioned, uh, the first of those which is the mazbala. The mazbala is the place where rubbish is thrown, the garbage tip. That's mentioned here that you shouldn't pray there. This يمكن تسميتها بالكناسة فهذه لا يصلى فيها لأنها مظنة وجود النجاسة. The Sheikh says you wouldn't pray in that kind of place, a garbage tip, because there is or the possibility of the impurity being there is very likely. In a garbage tip, that is the place where you would typically expect impurities to be. Everybody's garbage and rubbish and a huge tip. You would typically expect impurity to be there. And that's the reason why the Shaykh says it's mentioned that you wouldn't pray in this place. Majzara, the slaughterhouse, uh, where animals are slaughtered, cows, sheep, camels. Uh, 
then that place, the slaughterhouse, again it's not prayed in that place due to all of the blood which is exiting from those animals that are being slaughtered. Adam al-Masfur. When you slaughter those animals, then all of this blood which comes out of them to bleed them dry, in slaughtering them, then that blood due to that you wouldn't pray in that area. Because that blood, as some of the scholars they mention, is considered as impure. The dam al-masfuh, that blood which comes out is impure. So then you wouldn't pray in that area for those reasons. Al-Maqbara, the graveyard, that's clear. Many narrations about the graveyard are not praying in the graveyard, the impermissibility of praying in the graveyard. And some of the scholars like Al-Hafid ibn Rajab have mentioned that in fact the narrations about the graveyards are mutawatir. Multiple narrations. Multiple, many different narrations, many different chains, many different narrators concerning the fact that it is impermissible to pray in the graveyard. فَلَا يَجُوزَ So it's not permissible to pray in the graveyard, obligatory prayers or supererogatory prayers, except for the janazah. There is a narration that the Prophet ﷺ prayed the janazah prayer in the graveyard. That would be something specific that maybe is allowed. That is a specific item that would be allowed rather. Other than that, then the prayers from obligatory or supererogatory are not allowed within the graveyard. Anywhere within the boundary of the graveyard. You might have somewhere that they have allotted as the graveyard and there's a wall around it. Maybe they've only used 10% or 15 or 20% of the graveyard. And all the other sides of the graveyard are empty. But the walls encompass that whole area as the graveyard. Even if only 10, 20, 30, 50% is being used, you wouldn't be allowed to pray in the other area within the walls of the graveyard. Because technically, it's all of it the graveyard. Even if there aren't graves in that particular area, all of that is bounded off by the wall, so it's all considered as the graveyard. And that's clear. And the reason why that is prohibited, as many of the scholars have mentioned, uh, Allahu A'lam is due to preventing any door to shirk being opened. Because as the scholars say, one of the greatest causes of shirk coming about was the graveyards, was the ghulu, the excessiveness that people have in graves. How the shirk first began at the time of Nuh when they used to go to the graves of those righteous. And even to the extent that the salaf, they used to dislike anybody standing at the grave of the Prophet and making dua to Allah. Even if they were sincerely facing the qibla, making dua to Allah, and the grave of the Prophet is right behind them, they wouldn't like to stand there. They would say, because if you stand there and make dua, even if you're facing the qibla, nowadays people face the grave when they go. But even if you're facing the qibla, they would say, don't stand there. Because when people see you, they're going to think what? They're going to think, he's making dua there, next to the grave of the Prophet because there must be some blessing. That must be a better place to make dua. So they used to dislike that, even though they were upon sincerity making dua to Allah. So it's a means that leads on to shirk. And that's why that's prohibited. Uh, also, um, Al-Hammam. Al-Hammam, this is the place that, like we mentioned,
So the fourth place is this hammam, and the meaning of that is a place, like we mentioned, similar to those Turkish baths or whatever they call them, with the steam and the sauna rooms, and maybe a swimming pool in there. Those types are what's mentioned by this hadith, those types of places. But it's not permissible to pray there. One of the reasons the Sheikh mentions is, because that would be a place where typically you might expect for people not to be covering their full aura. You might have individuals in there who aren't covered properly with their aura. So in a place like that where people are walking around with their aura not fully covered, maybe it's not completely well done, then that would not be befitting to pray in that kind of place. And perhaps uh, there could be some impurity in that place too, if it's a place of bathing and people are taking ghusl, etc. So for those reasons, again, that's mentioned, it's not befitting to pray there. Qari'atul tariq, the next one, in the middle of the pathway, the pathway that the people used to walk upon. One of the reasons for that is because if that is the main pathway people use, then especially in those days when they had carts and horses and donkeys dragging things, if that was their main walkway, then you would expect droppings of those animals to be along that main walkway. That's where the animals are walking across, that's where the people are carrying their carts on the animals. So you would expect maybe droppings and other types of impurities coming from these animals on those main walkways. As well as the fact that it would be an obstruction to people if you were praying on that main walkway. Ma'atinul ibl the places where the camels are kept, the stables or the pens of the camels, and that's mentioned that it's not permissible to pray in those, due to, some scholars say the reasoning is unknown. <coughs> it's something we've been commanded to do, so it's ta'abudi, we do it, because we've been commanded not to pray in that place. Other scholars have mentioned maybe there is a reasoning to it, and that is due to the fact that, uh, just like it's been mentioned that you should make wudu if you eat the meat of camels due to the nature of camels, due to the severity camels have within them, the severe, harsh type of nature that camels have, then maybe from that reasoning again, the scholars mention you shouldn't pray in that place, lest you are affected or some consequence occurs to you from play, praying there. The final one, which is praying on top of the Kaaba, all those that are mentioned so far, there are evidences that support that you shouldn't pray in those types of locations. This one though, praying on top of the Kaaba, on the roof of the Kaaba, there is no evidence to prove that whatsoever. It is permissible. It would be permissible to pray on the roof of the Kaaba. There is no evidence whatsoever to prevent that. سَابِعًا وَهُوَ الْمَوْضِعُ الْأَخِيرُ وَهُوَ فَوْقَ ذَهْرِ الْبَيْتِ اللَّهِ يَعْنِ الْكَعْبَ فَهَذَا لَمْ يَرِدْ دَلِيلٌ يُؤَيِّدُ هَذَا النَّهِ There is no uh, evidence to prohibit that. And in fact, if you look in Sunan Sunan An-Nasai, Sunan An-Nasai, in the chapter Babu Al-Masajid, there are ahadith that prove that it's permissible in fact, to pray on top of the roof of the Kaaba. Those ahadith that mention that the Prophet ﷺ prayed inside the Kaaba, then the scholars gave further explanations on that and proved that it's actually permissible to pray on the roof of the Kaaba. So that one is not a prohibited place, and there is no evidence for that. We know that the Prophet ﷺ prayed inside the Kaaba in the year of the conquering of Mecca, uh, and so that is not one of those places. But the others, there are evidences to support that you shouldn't pray in the other locations. So that is with regards to the condition of the area where you pray needing to be pure. We'll continue next time with the same topic and there's going to be mention about the graveyards further. And there will be mention of shoes and praying in shoes and that issue related to that topic. Uh, just before we conclude, just as we promised, we'll do some of these questions from last time.
One question says from the from the last time or maybe the time before that, what is the ruling on women entering the masjid whilst on their menses? What are the difference or the different opinions? So with that issue there are different opinions. A woman who is on her period, is she allowed to go into the masjid or not? Many of the scholars, in fact, almost all of the scholars will say, if she is only passing through, that's not an issue. If she was only passing through for some reason, the masjid is such that she is passing through the masjid for some reason. Then the scholars don't prohibit that. But the issue is, is a woman allowed to go whilst in that state of being on a period? For example, there's a lesson going on in the masjid. She's not going to pray, of course. But can she go and sit for the lesson? The scholars, they differ about that. Sheikh bin Baz and some of the other scholars, they say it's impermissible. Impermissible for a woman to go and enter and stay and sit in a masjid whilst on a state of a period. Whilst she's on her period, then it's impermissible to do so. However, some of the scholars, they allow it. Some of the scholars, they allow it and they say that there isn't any clear cut evidence that proves women are not allowed to go to the masjid whilst on a period, whilst in that state, whilst in that time of the month. Sheikh Al-Bani, rahimahullah, is one of them. And he gives some of the evidences, like the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, when the Prophet said to her, when she came to that time of the month, Isna'i kullama yasna'u al-hajj ghayr an la tatufi wa la tusalli. That do whatever the normal pilgrim would do. But don't make the tawaf and don't pray. So the Prophet ﷺ prohibited her from making tawaf and from praying. But there was no other prohibition. There wasn't a prohibition that you're not allowed to even enter the masjid. No prohibition of that nature came in that hadith. To Aisha radiallahu anha, that you're not allowed to go into the mosque at all. Don't go into the masjid al-haram at all. There was no prohibition of that nature. Prohibition was don't pray and don't make tawaf. Otherwise, if you're going to go in or whatever else, there was no prohibition. So, Shaykh al-Bani uses that as an evidence to say that this shows the prohibition was specific to the tawaf and the prayer and it wasn't related to just simply walking into the masjid or sitting in the masjid. That wasn't mentioned in the hadith. So that's one example that he gives. And there's another uh, hadith where on one occasion the Prophet asked Aisha radiallahu anha to pass him something from the masjid. She said, I'm on that time of the month. So he said, That your menstruation is not in your control. Meaning the scholars they deduced from this hadith that that wasn't a factor to prevent Aisha from going into the masjid. So again, Shaykh Albani used that as an evidence to say that women can go into the masjid even on that state. But the scholars clearly explain that the woman must make sure that she is covered in the proper and appropriate manner so none of that uh, uh, blood exits in any way onto the masjid or anything of that nature. As long as she is properly looked after with that regard, then some of the scholars they say it's permissible because of these reasonings and these evidences. But... Uh, the other scholars, they mention some narrations uh, which seem to indicate that perhaps it is not allowed for a woman to go at all to the masjid even if it was for a lesson. But Allahu A'lam, this is the opinion of Shaykh Al-Bani due to some of these evidences that a woman is allowed to go as long as she is covered properly to attend lessons uh, and whatever else it might be in the masjid. Uh, 
Women have to wear a long dress which covers them to the feet. This was mentioned in the previous lesson. Are they allowed to wear a very loose garment that covers them to the knee or slightly lower than the knee and then also wear a very loose garment under that? So I assume the questioner is talking about two garments. A loose garment over the top which goes up to about the knee and then there's a lower garment which is worn that is also loose that goes right down to the feet. So two garments, a two-piece garment rather than the full jilbab that you might consider. With regards to that then, the scholars they say that the clothing a woman wears, like we mentioned in the lesson, has to cover the aura. Covering the aura, there are two main aspects to it. One is that it doesn't reveal the skin from underneath it. The clothing that you're wearing is sufficient enough, strong enough, thick enough, that it doesn't reveal the skin color from underneath. So it covers you in that way. The second characteristic is that it must be loose so that it doesn't identify the shape of the body from underneath it. So it can't be something tight. So as long as it is something that is thick and covers the skin color, it doesn't allow the skin to be seen or the skin color to be seen. And it's loose so that it doesn't allow the shape of the body from under it to be seen, then it's okay. Often people make the mistake thinking, as long as I'm wearing something that you can't see my body from underneath it, i.e. my skin from underneath it, I'm covered. But that's incorrect. If that is so tight, that the full shape of the body can be seen, then you're not covering your aura properly. The covering of the aura is that it can't be seen physically, the skin color underneath, and also the shape of it. So as long as that is intact, then the clothing is legitimate. Even if it is two pieces, even if it is two pieces, if it was long and loose, and it is fulfilling those conditions, then it's okay. And there was a question similar to that about socks. If a woman was wearing some long clothing, and we mentioned that all of the woman is aura in the prayer, the woman has to cover everything in the prayer apart from her face, even the feet. Even though there are some scholars, some scholars they said that covering the feet isn't an obligation, but majority and what appears to be a stronger opinion is that you cover the feet. So covering the feet is part of the prayer for the woman when she prays. Can she wear socks? Is that sufficient? That's one of the questions here. That if you have something long on on top, maybe when you go to Rukur or you go to Sujood, then the feet become exposed from underneath. So you need to cover them somehow. Are socks sufficient? Some of the scholars, they disapprove of that. Because they say socks, they don't, fulfill one of the two conditions of covering the aura. They can be thick, they cover the skin color, but they are tight and they don't cover the shape of the uh, foot. So for that reason, some of the scholars, they dislike that. However, other scholars like Sheikh Bin Baz, he mentioned there's no issue in that. If you have some socks that are thick, etc., they're covering the feet, and you have other items of clothing that are long, then in that instance, the Sheikh said that's sufficient and it's okay. So... Uh, that's what Sheikh Mimba said. In fact, his exact words were, إِذَا لَبِسَتْ الشَّرَّابِ حَتَّى تَسْتُرْ قَدَمَيْهَا كُلُّهُ طَيِّبٍ أَوْ كَانَتِ الثِّيَابِ طَوِيلَا تُغَطِّيَ الْأَقْدَامِ فَلَا بَأْسِ The question was asked to Sheikh Mimba about the socks, and he says, it's good. If she wears socks which will cover her feet, then that's good. And if she wears something really long, a really long garment, that even if you go into Rukur, even if you go into prostration, you're still covered, then that's good. And that's what some of the scholars say is better. When you're praying, just for the prayer, wear something really long. 
Even if you're going to ruku', even if you're going to sujood, the feet don't become uncovered. That's what some of the scholars mentioned. But Sheikh Bimba said, if you were to wear socks, then it's okay. The issue of the gloves. The women have to cover their hands then. According to this narration, everything is awra, except for the face. With the issue of the gloves, then again, it's something that's differed about. But the majority of the scholars, they say, uh, that, or rather, with the, with the gloves, it's, it's uh, differed about. But what's better, as Sheikh Muhammad bin Saleh al-Rathameen said, what's better is that a woman should cover them in prayer. But it's differed about. And Sheikh bin Baz, for example, said there's no real issue in that. That's something where there is leeway. If she covers them, good. And that's better, as Sheikh al-Rathameen says, to keep yourself away from the differing. And if you weren't to cover them and you prayed without gloves, then Sheikh bin Baz says, la ba's. Then it's still okay. With regards to the hands, that's something the Sheikh says it's a bit more... Uh, there's a bit more leeway with regards to the issue of the hands. Um, even within the home? These conditions are within the home, outside of the home. These are conditions for the prayer. These are not conditions for the woman what she has to wear when there are other people away. Or when there are other people present. That's different. The woman, when there are other people present, that's one thing. The woman what she has to wear when she's praying, that's another thing. Even in her home. She has to cover the full body and cover her feet and wear the gloves if they are available and that's better to do so. All of that, even in the home if there's nobody else present. The colors don't matter. There was a question asked to one of the scholars, what if a woman wears a white dress, prays in a white dress or some colorful dress? There's no problem in that. Sheikh Muhammad bin Salih al-Thameen mentioned, the problem isn't in that. If you're in your home and there's no other people, no other men who are going to see you, there's no issue in that then. Now the issue isn't about men looking at you. Now the issue is about you covering yourself for the prayer. So as long as your body is covered and it's not showing the shape of it, and you're fully covered, even if it was a white dress, it doesn't matter. You are now fulfilling the conditions of covering the awrah in your home. Outside of the home, then it's a different issue, wearing dark clothes, not attractive clothes. Uh, those are different things then. There was one question about in relation to the uh, Fajr prayer, the Prophet used to recite 60 to 100 ayat. Was this in total for the two raka'at together or was it in each one? For that one, Allah A'lam. There's a narration in Abu Dawood which seems to indicate it could be either one of those two situations. That maybe the hadith is relating to 60 or 100 in a single raka'ah and then 60 to 100 in the second one as well or 60 to 100 altogether. There's a possibility of both, Allah A'lam. And the last question then uh, was regarding this one. It says a group of sisters want to revise together and ask questions and answer to test knowledge. Each sister will have a turn to question, and others will answer. We know that questioning is from the sunnah, but are a bit confused about answering. What is the correct intention to have when answering the question? Should we strive and compete to answer the question, or hold back due to fear of riyah? Revising together, revising is good. Revision, muraja'ah, this is something the salaf they used to advise with. And they used to say, Afatul ilmi an nisyan. The calamity when it comes to knowledge is forgetfulness. So they used to say, in other narrations too, that some of them used to say, if I stay up the night revising, that's more beloved to me than even praying the night prayer. Revising my knowledge and going over it. So revising is something good. Revising and studying and going over the work, questioning each other as a means of revising with the answers there. All of this type of revision is good. But uh, when doing it, when you're doing it for revision purposes, and you're all there, you have the knowledge, you have the book, you have the CD, the answers are there. Then, 
it's okay and it's good to answer the question. There it's not an issue of shyness and riya and showing off. You're all there for the sake of revision. And you're all there to try to help each other to learn, to practice what you've learned, to revise what you've learned. So then there's no point everybody saying, well, we're going to revise, but nobody's going to speak because we're afraid that we might be showing off if we get the answer right. That's an instance, a situation where you are revising. You're all going to read something, you're going to recap something, you're going to mention some issue, bring the answer from the scholars. That's revision, that's good. Having your intention, you're not doing it for the sake of showing off there to impress your friends. You've revised and you've done your work for the sake of knowledge. And you're now together there for the sake of increasing your knowledge. But with all of this type of thing, it should be mentioned as well, that revision and these types of things, they are only to be done by brothers or sisters once they have the ability to be able to do so. They have a certain amount of knowledge they've been studying. For example, they come to the lesson, they study and they concentrate. Then afterwards, maybe they question each other, I understood this from here, what about you? Did you understand that as well? You go over the work. But the danger with this type of thing is some people, they begin to do it as a means of revision, which then leads on to becoming lessons. And that we mentioned in Rasulullah Thalatha, Al-ilmu qabl al-qawli wal-amal. Knowledge comes before statements and actions. So it's not befitting that people get together, and an individual, for example, who is considered as somebody who knows more. And in reality, maybe he does know more. But there's a difference between somebody knowing more than the others, and to being in a position where you are then able to teach and put that across to other people and have the ability and be qualified in that book or in that issue to be able to teach it. There's a difference between that and somebody being more knowledgeable than others. Somebody might, you might have a group of 10 people, one of them is more knowledgeable than the others. Maybe that's because one of them has memorized Surah Al-Ikhlas and the others haven't memorized anything. So now just because he knows one Surah of the Quran, he's the most knowledgeable. So, you have to be careful that these are genuinely just revision lessons. You learn the knowledge from the lessons that are going on, that are delivered by scholars, telelinks, other uh, lessons which are going on by individuals qualified. Then after that, you go back and you revise that work. And you go over that work that you covered. Not that you go, this is the danger now, for example, you go in this group of yours, and you say to everybody, let's all go home and read a particular book. You pick a book. Al-Qawa'id al-Arba'a, for example, the four fundamental principles. And none of you have ever studied that. None of you have actually been to lessons where somebody has taught that. So then it's not good in that way for you to just go and read and then come back and say, we're going to revise it. Because then all of you are in a state where none of you have studied that properly in a proper place of education where somebody qualified is teaching. That's what the scholars used to say isn't good. For you to then almost make that revision lesson as a knowledge lesson that you're going to read something from scratch, and then you're going to revise it when you've never actually studied it properly with somebody qualified to teach it. And that's why it becomes a problem as well, when you have sometimes a situation where people are going to prepare things. So you say in your group, you prepare a talk on taqwa, you go and prepare a talk on repentance, and then we'll come back and revise, you tell us what you prepared, and we'll benefit from your speech, and then this person will prepare something. That's... Again, slightly problematic because you're in a situation where everybody's preparing things and nobody has the ability to fully check that. So maybe an individual comes prepared with a hadith and narrations and they've misquoted them or they've misplaced their understanding of them. That type of revision and those types of things when they go into that level, it's not befitting. You should stick to the basics. 
go to the lessons of those qualified to teach, and then go back and revise those things. Revise those, go over those lessons. But as for making your own lessons, pick a book and go home and practice it and come back, and we'll go over it and things like that, it's not really good. It's far better if you're going to revise, go to the lessons, stick to those lessons from the qualified individuals, scholars, translated works, etc. Then after that, go and revise them together. But not to make up your own talks that you're going to come and then tell each other, who's going to check those? If somebody goes and prepares and comes back, who checks it? So you have to be careful with this revision. And particularly with the sisters, as it's mentioned, with sisters, sometimes the problem which occurs sometimes in some places, it's, it's been mentioned previously, that maybe sisters, they begin to have their own revision lessons and circles to the extent that they begin to then leave the mainstream, inverted commas, the actual lessons that are going on, being taught by translations of the scholars, etc. That isn't befitting. The main focus of lessons for brothers and sisters should be the gathering in the masjid, the gathering where that lesson is going to be held, translations from the books of the scholars and other than that. That should be the main focus where those lessons are, being going, are going on by those individuals who are able to deliver them. That should be the focus. Not that you start to have these revision classes and almost they become as the priority, as the focus. That's the gathering. And then these other lessons, well, if we can make it, we'll make it. That's not befitting. What's befitting is that you make the focus, the actual lessons. And then these are lessons that then supplement the studying from the actual lessons. Not that they become independent study circles. Independent things where you learn separate things and you prepare and you revise. But the revision lessons, if they are done, that's the way they should be done. And that's what the scholars used to advise. Go to the mainstream lessons from the scholars, etc. translations. Then go back and revise over that topic and stuff together. Revise over what you made notes in. Ask each other what you understood. Maybe one understood something wrong, the other four. They can clarify, no, no, you meant this in the lesson. That's the way to revise. So we'll conclude upon that for now then, and we'll continue in two weeks' time. Quick follow-on from the first question. Oh. What's, the, uh, what's the position of a, a person? That's those issues, for example, the first one by the, the scholars for, from history have held different positions, for example, the ikhtilaf on an issue. So for example, let's take the one that it's permissible for the woman to call the masjid or not. So here we've got two positions, both have strong evidences, mm. for and against. So what is the mannerism of, for us as general Muslims with regards to those particular issues where scholars have historically held mm. different positions? So what's our mannerism? How should we treat one another? And how should we understand? Correct. So these types of issues now, where there are differences of opinion, like on those types of issues, can a woman go to the masjid or not? Scholars have differed. Sheikh bin Ba says it's munkar. He says it's something bad, very bad for a woman to go to the masjid if she's on her period. Sheikh Al-Bani says there's no evidence to actually prove it's not allowed. So there's a difference of opinion on that. And there are other issues of this nature where there are differences of opinion. You have the issue of the uh, hands. Do you put them down by the side after the rakur or do you put them up here? And the scholars, they will speak about this issue. And some of them may say harshly, our brother, as Sheikh Mibaz and Sheikh Al-Bani used to say to each other, our brother, he's good and everything, but he's made a clear error on this issue. They would, but that was within the bounds. With these issues where there is legit, where there is differing, there is differing and there are evidences on both sides. Like these types of issues. Then as the scholars they say, Al-Amr wasi'. There is leeway in that then. There is leeway. 
An individual wants to do this, he wants to do that. There are differences and there are scholars who have explained those differences from the olden times to our time. It's not befitting for somebody to come along and say, no, this is the opinion, this is the evidence. I don't care what your evidence says. I don't care what those scholars said. This is it. And for you to then implement and force that upon others as if it's an issue of you're an innovator if you don't and I'm not an innovator if I do. That's incorrect. With these types of issues, the scholars, they say, the Amr is wasi'ah. There is spaciousness, there is leeway in these affairs. And it's a mistake to have severity on these types of issues. Somebody says, well look, upon the evidences and everything, I believe that you're supposed to put your hands here. Another one says, no, look at all these evidences, everything I believe, definitely supposed to be there. That's not an issue that you then begin to say, he's a mubtadi'ah, he's a mubtadi'ah. You don't go to this level of harshness and severity over these types of issues where scholars have differed over for centuries and there are evidences strong on both sides. The Sheikh Suleiman al and other scholars, they used to say, this is from the lack of understanding from people who do that kind of thing. Pick up on an issue where there's been differing for centuries and strong evidences on both sides and they start to become severe on those issues. No, it's like this and I don't care about the other opinions. That's incorrect. The other opinions, they are strong too with these types of issues. They are ishtihad from the scholars and the conclusions they've come to. So it's not befitting to be severe on those issues. What is befitting to be severe on is when the people of innovation and desires try to use these principles out of context. So they begin to say the companions used to differ. And uh, it doesn't matter if you have different aqidah. We can still unite as the ikhwan al-Muslimin they say. When it goes to those boundaries, then clearly it's a mistake and wrong. And you clarify to the people, this is nonsense. But when it comes to these types of issues where there is leeway, and there are differences of opinion with evidences, and scholars have differed, then you look at the evidences, you look at the positions and the opinions, and you do what you consider to be correct. But you don't go to this level of severity upon other people who have genuinely, sincerely also looked at everything, and they've come to the conclusion that it's not like that. That it's, you put your hands here and you don't put your hands there. That's not something you begin to become severe on people on. These fiqh types of issues. And that's what the scholars used to mention. You don't become severe on these. Al-amr fihi wasi'. The affair with regards to these is much more spacious. There's leeway in it. Depending on those evidences. So we'll conclude upon that point.